0: Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University, and here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing, and thinking. So welcome to another Meet the Education Researcher podcast. My name is Neil Sowen. I work in the Faculty of Education at Monash University of Melbourne, Australia. And the aim of these interviews is simple. We spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what academics in and around the faculty are currently up to. So today I'm joined by Stuart Riddle, Senior Lecturer at the University of Southern Queensland, USQ. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning. Now, I really want to talk to you about your experiences of being a public academic. Now, you're a researcher that's not just churning out journal articles that nobody reads. You do make a notable effort to engage with the bigger world, the bigger picture of education. But before we get into all of that, it will be really useful to get a sense of what your work is actually about. I mean, what are the topics or the issues or the ideas in education that you're addressing?
1: I guess I I started uh, in a very different place to where I am now. Um, my doctoral study, uh, I was a high school English teacher at the time and playing in a rock and roll band. And I was really interested in why, um, the students in my English class, uh, were very keen to talk to me about bands and music and, and the latest hip hop act or whatever. Yet, uh, were very reluctant, uh, to come on the journey with me when it was time to study poetry in class. Mm. And so I was really interested in looking at how music connected to the lives of young people, um, in multiple different ways, kind of from the angle of trying to become a better teacher myself. Um, got caught by the academic machine in the process, uh, and ended up getting a job at USQ just before I finished my doctorate. Um, and then I came across a school in Brisbane, um, that had been set up by a guy who I knew through my days, uh, in the band, who started an alternative school for musicians. Um, in year 11 and 12, he'd basically dropped out of mainstream schooling, whether that was kind of public schools or private schools had a big mix of, of people. Um, and the, the thing that they shared was a passion uh, for music and wanting to be in the music industry in some way. So that began a project that lasted four or five years in the end and wrote a book out of it, uh, which amusingly ended up having nothing to do with music whatsoever. Right, right. And was entirely about kind of the relational work. That was going on between the teachers and the students and kind of the buy-in to the way that the school worked as much more than a school. So then that led to a project um, with Martin Mills and a few other people where we went and looked at um, state high schools in complex situations of multiple factors of disadvantage, but we went in to look at what was working in terms of um, engaging with with these teenagers in really difficult kind of contexts. And that's led me to the next one that I'm working on, which is a bit of an extension of that, and looking again at the kind of relational pedagogy and and how it is that we can move beyond an obsession with the metrics of what counts as quality schooling or quality teaching at the moment, and get back to, I guess, the foundations of pedagogy, which is that relation between kind of the teacher, the student and the knowledge, the thing, the thing of being under study.
0: So I'm really fascinated by how people's biography shapes the research that they do. So you've got the rock and roll thing going on, which I want to talk to you about in a minute. But,
1: I mean, you're also a high school teacher, I guess? Yes, yeah, so I was a high school English music teacher. So I mean, how
0: much did your biography or your experiences as a high school teacher inform the research that you're doing there?
1: It's absolutely central, I think. Like, so the thing that most interested me in the end at the music school, like I said, wasn't actually the music. It wasn't the the curriculum as such it was about the powerful relational work that that everybody was doing and and that kind of shared sense of of the passion for music happened to be the thing mm. that kind of drew everybody together and and made that school kind of tick um but certainly it doesn't have to be that i mean it could be anything really yeah, yeah, yeah. so i guess as as a teacher i think that, for me, was kind of the most powerful lesson that I learned because I taught for eight years um, in high schools, that the old, you know, I think it's in the eights or standards, you know, know thy students. But I think there's something in that um, that goes well beyond how it's captured by standard 1.3 or whatever the hell it is, which is about truly understanding the relational work that we're doing.
0: That's interesting that you refer to yourself as a teacher in the past tense, as a teacher I was. Do you still see yourself as a teacher? Do you still see yourself as part of the teaching profession?
1: it's an interesting question. If you'd have asked me a couple of years ago, I would have said, well, of course. Right, right. Uh, and certainly my workload is, you know, nearly 80% teaching. I, I do a lot of teaching. But where I am now is I see myself as a, as a researcher who works with teachers, but I don't think I have the right to speak for teachers because I don't think that I am a teacher now. If you said, am I an educator... I would totally go yes, of course I am. but do you see yourself as an advocate for teachers? Well of course. Um, that's kind of entirely the work that I'm that I try and do. but where it gets complicated I guess is that whole thing of you know who who is it that gets to speak mm-hmm. for teachers And you know there's a there's a long history of teachers kind of being silenced in curriculum reform, in policy development in, Even just public discourse. I mean, you, you look at the, the News Corp papers, every time they, they're doing a bash up on teachers, there's no teachers in there whatsoever. You know, there might be concerned parents or there might be Kevin Donnelly, but there's never teachers, you know, like they're, they're left out unless they're doing a feel good story about, look at this superhero teacher who turned around these kids' lives or whatever, which in itself is a really big problem because it sets up this unrealistic version of what a teacher should be.
0: So this brings us on to the area of public engagement then. So you're in this kind of quasi-role, this advocate role. You're not a teacher, but you're working on the part of it. And you're a, you've are you been a fairly high-profile face in the world of Australian education. I was just kind of looking you up. You have 37 articles on The Conversation. You blog for AARE. You're involved in teachers' associations. You edit teacher journals. You speak to the press. You tweet. Sometimes what you tweet gets put in the press. Has this been a conscious decision since you started? I mean, or just a natural byproduct of your academic work?
1: I guess if I speak to the conversation, um, I the uni had said one day, "Oh, there's this new thing called the conversation, and you know we should all get on it because of public engagement and whatever." And I was like, "Oh, that sounds great." And so I wrote a piece for them um, critiquing that plan and it only took a morning to write. It was up that afternoon, uh, and then all of a sudden I'm getting emails from radio stations to come and do interviews, uh, being asked for comment on different news stories and what have you. Um, And it was really seductive because all of a sudden uh, people were wanting to talk to me about stuff that I I felt like I had something to say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I think, you know, a, a journal article done well it takes a long time um a conversation piece can be done in a matter of hours and in as i came to learn over the course of doing many of them uh, the more inflammatory the better and so i got into a, a lot of hot water but on balance i would say it did more for raising my profile than it did for actively contributing to a serious debate.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting distinction to make because, I mean, presumably it did contribute to the debate.
1: Sure. Like I gave folks who you might lump into the camp of conservative commentators, I gave them fodder with which to kind of throw back at academia. So I got held up by um, the Australian newspaper as the vision of everything that's wrong with um, education academics these days. And it was a really interesting experience because I was like, wow, like I, you kind of, you speak out and then you become the target uh, for, you know, whatever agenda happens to be the thing at that point. And so you you see this happen time and again, it happens particularly um, to feminist scholars, to women of colour, to people who work from very marginalised positions who kind of publicly speak into whatever for it happens to be. Uh, And then just these trolls essentially Mm. kind of are there to try and take them down and don't engage substantively with what they're saying. So I'm certainly a lot more cautious now, but I haven't stopped. Mm. Like I I haven't written for the conversation for a while, um, but I certainly engage in debate on social media. Um, I absolutely am ready to kind of come out swinging if I feel like I've got something that, that I think I need to say. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think it's one of those things of pick your battles.
0: Now, you've made this sound like a, quite an isolating experience. I mean, what can the institution do to actually kind of back you up? Because it sounds like
1: you're kind of on your own. It's a really good question. And I guess like my current position on it is I don't think there's much the institutions can do, but I do think there's a lot we, we can do collectively as academics and as people kind of working in this space um that isn't about so like i don't want to blame institutions but they're essentially um you know modeled on the corporation it's about trying to get obviously that that impact engagement blah blah blah, getting the points up but at the same time all of the responses to these kinds of situations are about risk aversion and and about minimising the litigious kind of risks that they would face. And so just to give kind of a very quick example of what happened with me the day that I came to the attention of the Australian newspaper and they published four articles about me, my university didn't know what to do. So they went into this kind of panic about... So my head of school was focused entirely upon my personal wellbeing uh, because I was being personally attacked Um, in the press but the university writ large just kind of went oh we don't we don't know what to do and so all these questions came up about well what media training was on offer oh none what kind of steps are in place to support academics who kind of cop cop some grief well none um and so i got phone calls from hr going you know do you need to do anything do we need to set up some process where you've got a grievance against the university i'm like well no like i did kind of take these people on yeah, yeah like on some level I kind of should be held responsible <laughs> for the fact that I chose to to enter the fray but yeah like I think what happened after that that was really good for me with the different people in my network that were able to offer support and and so I got phone calls from people who said you know I want to talk to you about how this happened to me kind of 10 years ago or what have you, or I got invited to a couple of universities to spend time uh, with media research units and different people. So it actually, again, in a kind of a perverse way, it was it turned out to be a really good thing. Yeah, yeah. Because the the experiences that opened up were, were really interesting, whereas some other people have really, really copped a hard time. Yeah. And I think institutions can do a lot better. But at the same time, like I... I'm probably coming across a bit, a, a, a bit down on the whole but thing. I was going to say,
0: to flip it to a positive note, I mean, have there been nice, surprising experiences or uh, outcomes of putting your voice into the public domain?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So being, being able to have a public voice opens up so many different avenues for engaging with different groups of people that just, I don't, they're just not there Yeah. yeah. if, if you're kind of solely focused on publishing in academic research journals, um, and I think so. Like in my own kind of coming to be an academic, the kinds of folks who I was who I was reading um, were people like Michael Apple, um, Henry Giroux, Peter McLaren, like kind of all these crazy leather jacket wearing progressives um, from North America. Um, and then I was also really interested in Noam Chomsky, not so much his linguistics work, but but his political activism. Yeah. And so in terms of how I see the scholar, like the, the work of a scholar is I think if it's not publicly facing, what, what is it that, that you're doing? And, and I guess the response to my own comment there would be, well the biggest impact of research is often on other people's research. Yeah. So there is actually something in a more inward-facing kind of scholarly output that just kind of speaks to the community of scholars. And I think that's fine, but someone has to kind of go out to the world and cop a bit of a bruising.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I, th- I think the one thing that academics, you, education researchers can do is to try and influence the nature of the conversation with a small C rather than a big C. So even if you are going out there and copying a bruising, at least you are putting other ideas into the public domain. You're kind of giving people a new vocabulary, just a new way of looking at things, which is really, really powerful. Final question. What have you learned from being in a rock and roll band that you're now applying to education research?
1: Uh, we were very serious as a, as a band. In fact, when I was doing my PhD, one of my supervisor's biggest gripes uh, was I was always on tour and not submitting my work on time, to which I would kind of go, yeah, but, you know, I'm in a band. Like, there's, you'll, get, you'll get the work. So, like, we, you know, we thought we were pretty good, right? Like, we, we thought, you know, we're, we're the kind of band that deserves to be playing Wembley. or I still think we are. But, but there's always someone that's better, mm. that's smarter, that's more well-connected, that's more interesting that does more good work. Um, and so I think, you know, academics are really smart people, but there's this thing in, in education, I think, where we where we feel like we're driven by this higher moral purpose or this, this desire to do good. And everything's about improving, right? Improving the lives of these people or think of the children or, you know, if you're not working an 80-hour week, you're obviously, you don't care that kind of stuff. And I think teachers suffer from this as well Definitely. as yeah, education yeah. academics. But I think a little bit of the, you know, the, the being good enough without feeling like you've got a yeah, yeah. pack Wembley Stadium. Um, and I'm still coming to terms with that, I think, as a band. I'm, I'm very I'm very happy to kind of not rock star as an academic, but yeah.
0: Well, I mean, thanks ever so much for taking time to talk. It's been fascinating to talk to you. Uh, okay. Good luck with the work in the future. Cheers.